I don't know about you, but uh, I like, like some of the old hymns. That's what I grew up on. And I remember back in the day when all you had was a piano and organ and you had a, a hymn book and you sang out of that hymn book. There were no screens and there were no slides. There was no special effects. There was no coloring on the stage and different lights and stuff. Change, change has happened in the church and some of it's been good and some of it's not so good. And we try to temper some of that. We don't um, go too far out <laughs> on a limb. If we can just get Pastor Mark to wear that suit he had on yesterday at the funeral, we'd be fine. Amen. Just kidding, Mark. Where are you? <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> I asked him where that suit was. He said it's, uh, it had to be clean. But anyway, uh, we had a service yesterday for, um, I would call one of the matriarchs of our church. And that's happened the last several years. Several of the leading ladies in our church that God has used over the decades uh, passed away and went to be with the Lord and we had our service here yesterday and um, uh, it was a great service and we had a lot of laughter and a lot of fun. Miss Marie wanted her memorial service to be filled with laughter and we did that and we honored that memory of her yesterday and so out of her memory and out of basically the opportunity to kind of start out with something funny today I, I picked this up um, yesterday, and I saw it. It said, uh, for some of you who need help while you speed along the highway, there's a few hymns that you need to keep in mind. Now, I know no one went over the speed limit coming to church today. Right? Amen. Okay. In case you do decide to go over the speed limit, here's a few hymns to keep in mind. If you're traveling at 45 miles an hour, there's a hymn entitled, God Will Take Care of You. If you travel 55 miles an hour, there's a hymn entitled, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. If you're traveling 65 miles an hour, there's a hymn entitled, Just a Closer Walk with Thee. When you get to 75 miles an hour, there's a hymn entitled, Nearer My God to Thee. If you travel 85 miles an hour, there is a hymn entitled, a hymn for you, This World is Not My Home. At 95 miles an hour, your hymn should be played on your radio, Precious Memories, How They Linger. And if you by chance go 100 or beyond, the hymn that you should be singing is, Lord, I'm Coming Home. What does that have to do with our study today? I'm convinced if Hagar had a car, and if she lived in our culture today, she would be in the fastest car she could drive, going as fast as she could go away from her circumstance. She had been beaten down. She had been abused. She was afraid. She was alone. She had been hurt. And she was running back to Egypt as fast as she could possibly go. The only problem that she had was she could take only her two legs would take her there. And we see God coming to her at just her time in her moment of need. So as we start this study today, I ask you, have you ever been in a moment like Hagar in your life where you have been afraid? You have been alone. You have felt insignificant, unimportant. There has been an, an injustice that has been committed to you. Unfairly, you've been treated. You've been abused. 
And now you find yourself in a circumstance in which you're gaining more abuse and more ridicule and more humiliation. And the only opportunity that you see in order to release the pressure that is pouncing upon your heart and causing you to become very desperate is to run, to remove yourself from the circumstance as quickly as possible. That's where Hagar is today in this passage in Genesis chapter 16. And you probably have been there a time or two in your life, and maybe you're there today. And so we're going to personalize this text to help us in our journey as we struggle with the circumstances and the situations in our own lives. And in this personalization of this passage, I want us to understand, as Hagar learned to learn and understand, that God is an omniscient God. That word omniscient is a large theological word. It simply means God is all-knowing. And because he is an all-knowing God, he sees everything that transforms in and through your life. Everything in your life, he is aware of. He sees it all. And as he sees it, he hears your cry in your affliction, and he cares about your need. And in his time, in his way, in his agenda, he will, if you will wait patiently on him, he will minister to you and come to your aid. He will do that. If he did it for an Egyptian young woman named Hagar, he will do it for you. And so I want us to understand this omniscient God, this all-knowing God, and how he relates to Hagar, but more importantly, how does he relate to us today? So take a look at your outline. Let's take a look at the text, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 16 in the book of Genesis. The omniscience of God, the all-knowing God, first of all, we see in this text, comprehends my pain. He comprehends my pain. He understands my need. He sees me as the injustice or as the heartache or as the hurt is being inflicted. He is not an absentee landlord. He has not abdicated his throne. He is not inattentive. He has not taken a nap. He's not gone on vacation. He is a God that sees you and he understands, he comprehends, and he knows exactly what you're going through. You may not see him. You may not recognize him. You may not acknowledge him, but he comprehends your pain. And because of that, he will attend to you. Notice the text in verses one through six. I'm just going to read two verses because we dealt with this last week, so if you were not here, we'll sort of give you a recap very quickly, but only verse 1 and verse 6. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, down to verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power to do as you please. Then Sarai, notice, dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. If you remember several Sundays ago, Abram and Sarai were in a trouble. They were in Canaan. They were in the promised land and a famine struck and they stepped outside of the will of God and chose to depend upon Egypt to supply their need rather than God. And they stepped outside of the will of God, went down to Egypt. And when they arrived, Abram, if you remember, lied about his wife saying to Pharaoh's men that it was his sister. The report got to Pharaoh. They discovered that she was so beautiful, in fact, that Pharaoh wanted her as one of his wives. He bought her with a huge dowry, brought her into his home, became sick, recognized that it was God 
who was saying to him, this is not Sarai's sister, it is his wife. Then he returned Sarai and he kicked him out of Egypt. However, in that exchange, when Sarai was in the Pharaoh's palace, she became acquainted, I believe, with a young lady named Hagar. She was very young, very beautiful, very, very young. And she began to wait on Hagar. And when the Pharaoh sent her back, to her husband, and they left Egypt, Sarai decided to take Hagar with her, and off they go to Canaan, back to the promised land. Now in the text, we see in Genesis 16, beginning with verse 1, that Hagar so far is barren. There's an infertility issue. Ten years now, they have been waiting on God to fulfill the promise of an heir of the promise of God through Abram's seed, through the marriage of of Sarai and Abram, but to no avail in all their attempts, there's been no success. For 10 years, they've been trying to have a child the natural way. And she decides, I'm going to develop a little scheme of my own because I'm tired of waiting on God. And she proposes to her husband that he marry Hagar and through Hagar, maybe possibly the promise of God could be fulfilled. She became a surrogate for the promise of God. And he did just that. And she became pregnant. As we studied last week, something went on between the two women. And Sarai felt as if Hagar looked upon her now with contempt because she was barren. Instead of elevating her to a position of now her servant is now going to help fulfill the promise, it deflated her. It demoted her. It brought her down to a lower level, and she somehow sensed that she was being looked down upon, humiliated now by the pregnancy of Hagar, and if you remember, blamed Abram for it. Not Hagar, but Abram. And when she went to Abram, Abram said, she is under your power, do with her whatever you please. Bad advice. And here we see, I think, the abuse of power and the abuse of authority. And the Bible says, then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. That word harshly means that she dealt with her severely. It has a connotation that she humiliated Hagar. She was going to knock her off of her high horse. She was going to drop her level of influence. She was going to bring her down a notch. And what she did then was strictly to humiliate her and to knock her down to a lesser level than she felt. And it was a cruel thing that she did. We don't know exactly what she did, but we are simply told that she dealt harshly with Hagar. It was so hurtful and so shameful and so painful that it forced Hagar to look for an exit. And she did. She grabbed a few things that she could gather in her hands and she left. We're not told when, but she then departed from this beautiful mansion, I'm sure, this, this beautiful place in which Abram lived because he was a wealthy man. And she left on her own out into the desert and she began her journey to exit from the scene. And it is here that we learn in this story that God comprehended, he understood, he saw, he watched everything that took place. You know, the, the thing that helps us understand in this story is simply this. Have you ever felt like God was un, inattentive or unattentive in your life? Have you ever felt like that, that God's not really fully aware of all the things that are going on in your life? Because surely if he was, 
this wouldn't be happening to you? You ever felt like that? You ever wondered, God, do you know what's going on? Do you not see? Do you not comprehend? Do you not understand? Do you not, have you taken a vacation? Are you no longer looking down upon my life and noticing the things that are happening? I'm being treated unjustly, unfairly. There's an injustice happening. I have been abused. I'm afraid. I'm alone. I am, I am being treated as if I am without value. I am feeling insignificant and I need your help and God has not come to your rescue. Now, I'm convinced that, that Hagar, this idolatrous woman who's from Egypt more than likely didn't cry out to God. But we're going to notice that God sought her out. And God was well aware of what was going on in her life, even though she was a pagan infidel, an unbeliever. He was aware of what was going on in the household of Abram and Sarai with Hagar. He fully saw what happened. So he was not inattentive. God sees every activity in your life. He sees every moment. He sees every act. He knows every thought. He knows every feeling. He sees every single aspect about your life. I have in my office a thing that somebody gave me, the, the, the eye of God. It's a little coin. And it's to remind us that God sees everything. As a matter of fact, he knows what you're thinking right now. So you better be thinking about the passage. All right? So the all-knowing God, first of all, comprehends my pain. Secondly, we see that he comes now to my aid. Because he sees and he is aware and he knows what's going on, God now comes to Hagar's help. Notice in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Sure, alone, afraid, hurt. She is in danger. Keep this in mind. She's traveling alone. It's dangerous to travel alone, much less to be a woman who is pregnant, who's traveling alone. She is in physical danger, but she is alone. She has been devalued. She has been humiliated. She has been crushed. She has been hurt. And now as she is traveling through the wilderness, she is escaping as fastly as she can. We are told that, that she is headed toward where? She's headed back to Egypt. She's headed back to her homeland. She believes if she can make it to Egypt, she'll be safe and secure and everything will be okay. And so she's going to make this long, arduous journey all the way back to Egypt all by herself. What would drive her to do that? Desperation. To put herself at this kind of risk and this kind of danger, to make it back to Egypt because she felt more secure on this dangerous road than she did in the household of two people who claimed to be believers of Yahweh. And she's on the way to Egypt. She's putting herself in danger. And she's come to a place in the wilderness, a spring, where there's water. Why? You can't travel in the wilderness without H2O. You just can't. And she's stocking up for the journey. But notice the Bible says that he found huge in our understanding of this passage. He didn't find her in a sense that she was lost. He didn't find her in a sense that he was unaware of where she was. That word 
to find or found her means that he sought her out. He knew where she was and he went to where she was. He knew who she, he knew who she was. He knew what she was doing, and he knew where she was going. He knew her, and he knew her condition and her circumstance, and he came to her. I'm convinced that if you will wait on God, no matter what your circumstance, no matter what your situation, if you'll wait on God and have the patience to do that, God will come to your aid. For if he knows, and because he cares... He will attend to your need. He will come to your aid. Wait on the Lord. So what we talked about last Sunday, wait. And I have a hard time with that, don't you? I said, I have a hard time with that, don't you? Come on. You have a hard time with that? I have a hard time waiting. We don't like to wait on God. We want it now. And Hagar wanted out of her circumstance right then and there. She was not going to stay there another minute, and she fled. And as she was fleeing, while she was at this ring, God came to her aid. Isn't it great to know that we can never outrun the outstretched arms of the grace of God? And some of us today know some people that are running from God, and if you will lift them up in prayer, he knows where they are, and he will go to them where they are, and minister to their need. So the all-knowing God, first of all, comprehends my pain, comes to my aid. Thirdly, corrects my ways. He will correct my ways. For when he comes to me, he comes with a specific plan and a purpose to change the way that I see him, I see myself, I see my circumstance, and he will change my way, my path, my journey of rebellion, because that's what we normally do when we're under pressure and circumstances we don't like. We, we try to release ourselves from it. We try to get relief from it, and we run from it, and he's about to correct her course of action. Notice in verse 8, and he, well, let me, and he, I want to back up, I'm going to say the he. Who is the he? We saw earlier that he is called the angel of the Lord. Who is that? I believe that he's the pre-incarnate Christ. Where Jesus manifests himself to her as a second person of the Trinity. And here I believe that it is Jesus who comes to Hagar in her time of need while she's at the spring, while she's at the well, gaining resources to make the long journey back to her homeland. And so he, meaning the Lord, said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai. Hagar, servant of Sarai. Now, before you run over that, just, just, just stop for a minute and take a look at why would the angel, why would the Lord, the angel of the Lord, why would Jesus address her in this manner? Is she having an identity crisis? Not really. She knows who she is, and she knows why she's there, and she knows why she's running, and she knows who she belongs to. She belongs to, to Sarai because she was her servant. He's simply saying to her, Hagar, you are a servant of Sarai. I want you to go back to who you are and where you were. I want to remind you very gently that you are still under the service of Sarai. Even though you're trying to run from this circumstance, you're not getting very far because you can run as far as you want, but you're still Hagar, servant of Sarah. You're still her servant. 
So no matter how far you run, you're still the servant of Sarai. Running doesn't change anything. Let me say that again. Running doesn't change anything. You can run from your circumstance. You can remove yourself from your situation. You can release yourself from the hurt, the pain, and the heartache and get outside of the will of God. But no matter how far you run, you will not change a thing. You still are who you are, related to who you are, and you've not changed anything. You may have changed uh, a little bit for a little while, you think in your mind, but the reality is nothing changes. And so here we go. Hagar, servant of Sarai, notice the question. I think it's kind of strange. Where have you come from and where are you going? Why would he ask that? I mean, He's the angel of the Lord. He is the second person of the Trinity. It is Jesus himself who is all-knowing. Does he not know who she is, what's happened, and why she's running? The reality is, no, he knows who she is. He knows what's happening. He knows where she's going. Why ask the question? Is it a rhetorical question? No. He's wanting her to be honest about her circumstance and to confess what she has seen. It's for her that he asked this question. And God, as you're running from him, will come to you and he will knock on the door of your heart and he will gently ask you questions he'll probe in order to teach us something about ourselves so that he can gently get us back to where we need to be. And that's what he's doing here. And she said, notice her response, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. There's a confession, but is it complete? It's not totally honest, is it? She's leaving out some details Hagar is being incredibly vague in her confession to Jesus. I wonder how often we are vague in our honesty, in our confession to Christ. We think partial confession, partial honesty is enough to gratify the Savior, but it's not. He's wanting complete honesty and total confession in order for things to be as he thinks and he deserves them to be. And she's being very vague. And so the angel of the Lord then says to her, because you're being vague, here's what I want you to do. I want you to return to your mistress and submit to her. That sound fair to you? Here's a woman who's hurt, she's alone, she's afraid. She's been inflicted with injustice, and the Lord himself is saying, I want you to go back to your mistress and submit to her. Did you know the word submit here is the same word that is used early in the text when it talks about that, he, that she was dealt with harshly? That means to submit to the harshness of Sarah, to go back to the place in which you were being treated unfairly, in which you were being humiliated, in which you were being drugged down and knocked down. Go back into that circumstance. Go back into that situation. I'm convinced that sometimes it is God's will for us to stay in circumstances that are not quite favorable because it is there that we learn more about God than if we ourselves had removed ourselves from that circumstance into a safer place, we think, when the reality is the best place for us to be is in the center of the will of God, not out of the will of God. If we have taken ourselves out of the will of God, we think we've made ourselves safer. The reality is we're safer in the center of the will of God because it is God who protects. It is God who has the power to shield us and to guard us and to guide us. And so he says, I want you to repent. 
I want you to stop. I want you to turn around, and I want you to return back to the home that you left, back into that circumstance that you left, and I want you then to be restored, to be reconciled with Sarai and with Abram. I thought about that long and hard. And here's the question I want to ask you today. If you knew, if you could see your life, past, present, and future, all at the same time, if you had the all-knowing ability to see your past, your present, and your future all at the same time, without any limitations. In other words, I know where I am today, I know where I've been, and I know where I'm going. Would that affect decisions that you make today? Would it? You think? Well, if I know what's going to happen 10 years from now, I can do things in my life that can change, that could alter, that could protect, that could shield, that could help me deal or cope with whatever's coming. Right? I'm not going to turn left here because I know where's heaven. I'm turning right. We can make a lot of different choices. That is how God sees your life. He sees your life in the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. So why should we get angry with God Stop what you're doing. You're going the wrong way. Wait a minute. I don't see it, God. I think I'm going the right way because I'm getting out of the circumstance. It's painful. It's hurtful. It's not right. I'm, I'm removing myself or releasing myself from this situation because it's not favorable for me. And I, I believe I'm in danger and I'm, I'm being put down. I'm being humiliated. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change. He says, no, 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 go back there because that's the best place you need to be because I, God, see the past, present, and the future all at the same time. And that's how he sees your life. So why do we get angry with God when he calls us to a certain place, to a certain circumstance, to a certain situation that we might think that's not favorable for us? And why do we deny him the authority and the insight to lead us into places that would benefit us rather than harm and hurt us? Because if he is a God who sees and who cares and who loves and who ministers to us, he will not call you to a place unless it's his will for you to be in danger. And the safest place you can be is in the will of God, not outside of the will of God. And so shouldn't we, like Hagar, allow God in our circumstance to lead us and guide us to and away the places that he has in mind for us because he can see the future, not just the present. He's an all-knowing God. So, an all-knowing God comprehends my pain, comes to my aid. He corrects my ways. Fourthly, he clarifies my future. You know, as I looked at this, I'm trying to put myself in Hagar's sandals. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's on her mind? What's in her heart? She's here. She hears the Lord say to her, I want you to go back to to." to Sarai and to Abram. Go back there. And she's probably thinking to herself, if I go back there, what kind of future am I going to have? I mean, God said, go back. What kind of future am I going to have? And isn't it great that he understands her concern and he comforts her by clarifying what her future is going to be? He gives us, he gives her some insight as to what's going to happen in the future if she will obey God. This is what God's going to do for her. 
I'm going to clarify your future. Verse 10, and the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Notice what God says something about her future. There's going to be a multiplication in your future that is, is so massive that you're not going to be able to count it. Your offspring are going to be huge. They're going to be more than you're going to be able to count. What does that sound like? Sounds like the promise that God gave Abram, doesn't it? It's almost exactly what God promised to Abram. Imagine, here is Hagar, an Egyptian young lady who's pregnant by Abram's child in a wilderness by this, this, this uh, well, this spring, and the angel comes and says, the child that you're carrying is going to be the seed of, of more descendants, more offspring than you will ever be able to count. Wow. Not only that, but the means by which I'm going to fulfill this promise is through a son. Now, they didn't have any of these things that we have today, ladies, called sonograms to see what gender the child was. She didn't know what the gender was. Neither did Sarai when she inflicted that harsh punishment. She just assumed it was a boy. They didn't know until now. The angel reveals that it's a son. She's elated. What an honor. It's an honor to give birth at all. You know, I wish we still had that in our culture today. It's an honor to be a woman and to birth a child. And she was honored that not only she was going to give birth, but she was going to give birth to a son. This was news to her. And this son that she's going to give birth to, he's the means by which God's going to use this seed and multiply this seed. But notice that now this young man that's going to be born is going to be named Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears. Hagar, God has heard you. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to you. Have you ever felt like you're not being heard by God? I mean, many of us saw that movie War Room. And if you haven't seen it, I hope it's still in theaters. I know if it is, you need to go see it. And when we're in our closets or in our time alone with God and we're praying, have you ever felt like you're not connecting? You ever felt like, you're not, you know, when you get that, your cell phone, you, you're trying to get a connection? You ever tried that? God, I'm not connecting. I, I'm not hearing anything. I, I don't know if you're listening. And Hagar didn't know if God was listening, but she was crying out in her affliction, and God heard her cry of affliction. God hears your cry of affliction. He's a God who cares. And we have a hard time with that. Don't we? A God who is so caring that would take the time to hear my little old prayers. I am so insignificant. I'm not really that important. I'm just the speck of dust in this large sea of world here. And, and, and I, I'm just not reaching. I'm not getting anything. I'm not hearing. But the whole time you've been crying out to God, God has heard every single word that you have prayed. And he has heard her. 
and he will hear you. And when he comes into your life and he speaks to you, he will clarify the future that he has in store for you. And I wish we had time to look at all the wonderful promises of God in his word, but we don't have time to do that. Now, notice, not only comprehends my pain, comes to my aid, corrects my ways, clarifies my future, but he calms my fears. He calms my fears. Her concern was still for her son. I know and I heard what you have said, Lord. You have said that I'm going to birth a son, and through him will come this, this whole generation, this, this whole line of descendants, of, of people who will come that will be more than I can count. But if I go back to that circumstance, to that situation, in that place, I'm going to come under harm. What's going to happen, not to me, but what's going to happen to my son? For most mothers are more concerned about what happens to their children than they are about themselves. Right? Amen, moms? There, she's more concerned about this, this child that she has in her womb. What's going to happen to this baby? And he calms her fears in saying to her, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. How would you like to hear that about your son? And some of you mothers of toddlers today probably feel like that's exactly the description of my child. He is a wild donkey of a man. That means he's not going to be able to be confined. There's not going to be any constraints. Nobody's going to be able to corral him. Nobody's going to be able to conquer him. And the descendants of Ishmael have had many wars since this time and have yet to be conquered. And you wonder why Obama is trying to befriend them. They have yet to be conquered. They've been subdued from time to time, but they've never been conquered. Why? Because of the promise of God. You believe that? That's what he says. Because of the promise of God. For it says here, for his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. There's going to be conflict. This, this, this child of yours and, and, and all of his descendants are going to be in constant conflict with everybody. Not just a few people, but with everybody. How would you like to have a child that has a conflict with everybody? They go to school and they can't get along with anybody. Why? Because there's no limitations. There's no boundaries for them. There's no regulations. They just think they can do anything to anyone, anytime, whenever they please. You can't control them. That's why we give them medication today. I would have been on medication if I was in school today instead of sent to the principal's office a lot and, you know, that thing they don't do anymore. It didn't help much, but it hurt a little bit. Sit down and be quiet. You're here to learn, not to talk. And so here we have then a second aspect about this, or the final aspect of this, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The conflict is not going to be with everybody, but the conflict is going to be with Israel, who are his kinsmen. His kinsmen are? He's the son of Abram. Who's Abram? Future of Israel. And because he's going to have conflict with Abram and his family, he's going to have, all of his descendants from now on are going to have conflict with all of Israel. That's why the descendants of Ishmael today are in conflict with those descendants of Abram. It's because God has said that is going to be a part of his plan and his purpose. Pretty strikingly interesting, isn't it? 
And I'm convinced that they are a lasting monument of the fulfillment of this promise. For when God makes a promise to a little lady by a well in the wilderness, and he makes a promise, he keeps it. Doesn't matter what the U.S. wants or Israel wants, it's what God has said. And the reason why Ishmael's descendants are who they are today is because of this promise to a little lady in a well, in the wilderness, all alone, by herself, crying out, and God comes, and he says, guess what? I'm going to protect your descendants from here on out. Now, if you want to know more about how this happens, come to my study on Sunday nights, and we'll talk about it. How about that commercial, wife? There's a final outcome that will come. But the point that I want to make is this. He calms her fears. She's worried about what's going to happen to her baby boy when he's born. And God wants her to, to be comforted with the fact, I will protect your child and his descendants. But notice the important, very interesting act about six. It says, he completes my faith. Once he's calmed her fears, he completes her faith, and he will complete your faith. Notice what happens. So he called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. What did she call him? You are a God who sees. You are a God who sees. He is a God who sees. His eyes are not shut. His mind is not closed. His comprehension is available. He is a God who sees. I don't care who you are, where you are, he sees you today. Wow, isn't that great? Unless you're running. Because when you run, you normally want to hide. But you can't hide from the all-seeing eye of God. You are a God of seeing. For she said, notice what she said then, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. He has seen her all along. Now she sees him. He has revealed herself to him. She has recognized who he is, and now she professes faith in him. She receives what she sees. That sounds like faith to me. Verse 14, therefore, the well was called. It has between Kadesh and bread. How's that, right? Did I help you out a little bit? <laughs> Bur Lahai Roy. Is that good enough? He saw her. He cared about her. He continued to look after her, and he promised he would. And she believed that he would. And she marked that place with an act of remembrance that would forever remind her of this encounter. Let me encourage you to do something. When God reveals himself to you because you've recognized his activity in your life and you have received that activity and you've decided that it is God who has spoken, write it down, record it somewhere. Because there are times in your life you're going to go back and you're going to need to be reminded of what God has done and what he's spoken and what he said. She marks this place. 
in which her faith now is established in Yahweh, in Jehovah, in the revelation of Jesus himself, the Lord of the Second Trinity. And then lastly, he confirms my obedience. He confirms my obedience. How do you know her faith in God was real? She obeyed. She did what God asked her to do. She obeyed. Faith isn't faith unless it results in obedience. In obedience. And Hagar bore Abram a son. She went back to that circumstance, back to that situation. And she confessed to them what she had done, why she had done it, and what the Lord had spoken to her when he spoke to her. And that's why she was there. And they received it. And notice, we know that because Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. It was God who named this child, not Abram. Abram named him what God wanted to name him. And in verse 16, and Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hagar returned, reported, and submitted. Abram named, but notice in verse 16, his age. Why does it record this time frame? Because it's reminding us that God has yet to fulfill the promise that he made to Abram. Ishmael is not the fulfillment of that promise. Someone else is coming. And Abram and Sarai are forced to wait. And they have learned, they have learned from this little pregnant Egyptian woman who was out in the wilderness by a well, by herself, alone and afraid and in danger when the angel of the Lord, when the Lord himself came, that God is a God who sees not just her, but God is a God who sees them as well. They learned a lesson from Hagar. And it's about time that the pupil now becomes the instructor to the teachers. <laughs> because it is, Hagar, it, is, it is Hagar who teaches them that God sees. It should have been Sarai and Abram who taught her that. But they didn't. It was her who taught them that. A little insignificant nobody taught them something of importance. I have something I want to show you, and we're going to close. I have in my hand a $20 bill. I know it doesn't seem like it has much value. I wish I had a $100 bill, but I couldn't find anybody with a bill bigger than $20. Anybody want to trust me with a bill of $100? I didn't think so. Anyway, $20. And um, it has value, doesn't it? Now, granted, it didn't have as much value as it used to have, but it has some value. And any of you, if I walked down this aisle and wanted to give this to you and say, here, just take it, would you take it? Would you take it? Why? Because it has value, right? You'd still take it. Well, let's say I did this to it. And then handed it to you. Would you take it? If I threw it out there right now, would you take it? And you wouldn't give it back to me either, would you? Why? Because even though it's crumpled up, it still has value, doesn't it? It's still 20 bucks. Might buy you lunch here in a minute. Well, let's say I put it on the ground and stepped on a little bit. Would you still take it? Would you guys 
teenagers, would you still take it? Yeah? You would, wouldn't you? You got college to pay for. <laughs> well, what if I did this? Would you still take it? Why doesn't this $20 bill lose its value? It's backed up by something bigger than itself called the Treasury of the United States of America. Why do you never lose your value or your significance? Why? Come on, somebody help me make the, the application. Why? Because of? Okay. Why do you think you're insignificant? Why do you think you're worthless? Why do you think you're unimportant? Satan cannot devalue you. Sin cannot devalue you. God loves you, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and you're a part of that world, and you always will have value with God. You are never too insignificant for God, no matter where you are, what's going on in your life, what injustice is being happened, what pain, what heartache, what hurt, what you're afraid of. God sees you, and he cares about you, and he will come to you at the right moment, at the right time, and he will minister to you. He will. If you will wait on him and trust him, he did it for a little Egyptian woman who was pregnant in the wilderness, who, who more than likely before this time was an idolatress. And if he will do it for her, he will do it for you. And he will bless your life beyond your wildest dreams if you will follow him. Never underestimate your value to God and what he can do through your life. For he sees you important enough to see, to listen to, and to look after. For he cares for you. Let's pray.